This is How to Reach the West Again, a podcast that explores what it will take to have a fresh missionary encounter with Western culture. I'm your host, Brandon O'Brien. Our time together each week begins with an explanation from Tim Keller about one of six essential elements of a missionary encounter. Next come conversations with scholars and practitioners of various sorts who study these things and put them into practice in diverse contexts throughout Europe and North America. How do we explain Jesus to people who view the church as woefully irrelevant at best and harmful at worst? That's the question we're exploring in this episode. Tim Keller begins by outlining the elements of a post-Christian evangelism dynamic that moves beyond traditional evangelistic methods. This work, he concludes, will be the work of ordinary Christians through personal relationships, supported by churches that create a variety of spaces for preaching, teaching, and dialogue. Our two guests illustrate what these efforts can look like. Rene Bruel, a pastor in Rome, gives us great examples of how his church attracts non-Christians through fellowship and friendship that demonstrates the power of the gospel when people run up against the limitations of the cultural narratives they live by. Next, Lisa Fields, an apologist and founder of the Jude 3 Project, explains how she equips churches to address the unique apologetic questions raised by Christians of African descent. First, here's Tim Keller. A truly post-Christendom evangelistic dynamic. Western churches have many evangelistic methods and programs, but, as we saw above, they all assumed that there were still non-Christians in society who would seek out the church, or at least be open to an invitation to come, and who held basic concepts of God, truth, sin, and an afterlife, and who thought that even if they did not believe, religion was a positive good for many people. For 1,000 years, the Western Church's basic ministry model was premised on the social reality that people would be coming, prepared, and positive, and we could simply preach our sound biblical sermons to them. Increasingly, this is not the case. If it is true that more and more people lack any religious foundation and that the dominant cultural narratives are making the Christian faith more offensive, then we must find new and compelling ways to share the gospel in this generation. In fact, we must discover a late modern version of the evangelistic dynamic of the early church, which grew through conversion in a similarly hostile and uncomprehending culture. The elements of such a dynamic include these. First, attention. How do we get people to pay attention to the gospel when they find it irrelevant? Michael Green estimates that 80% or more of evangelism in the early church was done not by ministers or evangelists, but by ordinary Christians explaining themselves to their oikos, their network of relatives and close associates. People paid attention to the gospel because someone they knew well, worked with, and perhaps loved, spoke to them about it. The greatest challenge today is to stimulate a significantly sized percentage of Christians to intentionally adopt missional living in their daily lives and relationships. As Alan Noble notes in Disruptive Witness, Late modern people are more open to considering Christianity when reading or watching stories and narratives that witness to Christian insights and during times of stress, difficulty, disappointment, or suffering. Why? All worldviews that are not biblically based are like a suit of clothes that are too small. 
Such clothes always uncomfortably pinch, and occasionally they actually rip. The late modern view of reality and the self does not fit human nature as God designed it. There are times in which stories and art reveal how today's beliefs pinch and fail to satisfy. There are other times, especially times of pain, that the late modern worldview rips and wholly fails to provide what is needed to face such experiences. Christians need to be prepared in these moments to give an answer to everyone who asks them to give a reason for the hope that they have. That's 1 Peter 3.15. This entire project assumes Christians will know enough about the Bible and their faith to engage in conversations with others. But it also assumes believers have many relationships with non-Christians. It assumes that the average Christian is in close proximity to non-Christians. When that isn't the case, the first and most important step is to focus on building personal relationships with non-Christians by befriending them and loving them since they are increasingly unlikely to go to church on their own. Second, attraction. Helping non-Christians recognize they have a problem that requires salvation will mean questioning people's answers even before the more traditional apologetic method of answering people's questions or objections about Christianity. Now, what I mean by people's answers is I mean the working answers to the big questions of life that everyone must have. No one can live life without meaning, satisfaction, freedom, identity, forgiveness, forgiveness given and received without resolution of moral questions and hope for the future. The culture's ways to provide these things ultimately will not work. They will at least pinch and sometimes rip. And if we have people's attention, we can at the opportune time point to the unsurpassed resources of Christianity for each. Christianity gives us a meaning in life that suffering can't take away, but can even deepen a satisfaction that isn't based on circumstances a freedom that doesn't reduce community and relationships to thin transactions, an identity that isn't fragile or based on our performance or the exclusion of others. Christianity offers a way to both deal with guilt and forgive others without residual bitterness or shame, a basis for seeking justice that did not turn us into oppressors ourselves, a way to face not only the future, but death itself with poise and peace, an explanation for the senses of transcendent beauty and love we often experience. Put another way, we must help non-Christians see that their indelible needs and longings for these things are actually echoes of their need for God. Third, demonstration. There's a definite need to address the traditional objections to Christian faith. We must still answer people's questions. These objections may cluster around God. For example, people ask, how can a good God allow suffering? Or how can God send people to hell? Or they may cluster around the Bible, whether it's historically reliable or compatible with science. But today, non-Christians ask questions especially about the church's historical record of injustice in regards to slavery, the oppression of women, the exclusion of gay and trans persons. These issues must be faced with a combination of humility and clarity, and also with a gentle insistence that doubters recognize the assumptions and moral judgments on which their objections rest, which themselves are leaps of faith. Fourth, conviction. We also have to explain the gospel in a way that is compelling and attracts late modern people. The gospel is, salvation comes from the Lord. That's Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Gospel presentations, then, must always make two points. There's the bad news. You're trying to save yourself, but you can't. And there's the good news. You can be saved only through Christ alone, not your efforts. Now, in traditional culture, 
in which the basic narrative is the meaning of life is to be good, the bad news and good news look something like this. The bad news? You know you should be good, but you aren't good enough in your behavior, nor truly good at all when you look at the motives of your heart. For example, though you don't commit adultery, you have lust in your heart. Matthew 5, 27 to 28. That's the bad news. And the good news? Jesus has taken the punishment your moral failures deserve so that you can be permanently forgiven. In other words, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. In late modern culture, however, in which the basic narrative is the meaning of life is to be free, the bad and good news may look more like this. The bad news? You want to be free, but you're not? You must live for something, and whatever it is will enslave you and lead you to exploit other people. The existential justification identity you seek is impossibly fragile and will lead you to exclude others. The deep satisfaction you seek is elusive and can't be found in this world. And the explanation for all this is that you were created for the true God. Your failure to live for him is a violation of both obligation and love. So what's the good news? On the cross, Jesus reversed the power dynamics of the world, giving up power in service rather than exploiting. And he took the just penalty for our unjust rejection of God and treatment of others. This provides an identity unlike any other, one that provides unconditional love and is not based on the ups and downs of your performance. This identity creates a new freedom from being controlled by any force or object in the world and also provides a foretaste and assured promise of deep satisfaction and beauty in the future. Now, all these elements of evangelism, attention, attraction, demonstration, conviction, will each need to be rethought in our time. Attention and attraction will be largely accomplished by Christians in their personal relationships, which we have said means that Christians must have deep relationships with non-Christians, and this must be done in a culture in which all face-to-face relationships are thinning out. Christian leaders also need to equip lay people with the tools and resources to have evangelistic and apologetic conversations. If these relationships are established, churches will then need to provide a great variety of venues in which people considering the faith can be helped through the stages of attraction, demonstration, and conviction. This can be done through talks, teaching, and preaching, through dialogues and conversations, through small groups and large gatherings, through worship, stories, and art. Being in Rome, the main, I think the main question people have when it comes to Christianity uh, doesn't really center about God. For example, is there a God or how can there be a good God if there is suffering? Or um, about the Bible, uh, is it trustworthy or is it oppressive or is it, uh, does it exclude people? But it centers on the church, uh, who the church is. People feel, feel that the church is flawed and outdated, but it's the only church we know. Uh, we don't accept it, but it's ours. Rene Bruel is the founding pastor of Hopera Church in Rome and author of The Paradox of Happiness. He also contributed a chapter to a city-to-city publication called Movements of the Gospel, which is a collection of reflections from pastors in Europe about evangelism in Europe's diverse cultural contexts. As Rene explains, the Roman Catholic Church presents unique apologetic challenges for young Italians. For a couple of generations now, most Italians have detached from the church. They see some um, 
utility for it, almost like a public utility. Like in a, uh, it's good to have cemeteries when I die. It's good to have the church when I get married. But they don't see much of the relevance for them right now. And they see uh, an outdated um, model when it comes to se sexuality and how it plays out in the uh, scandals of priests uh, who abuse people or have double lives. Um, and they don't see how it, it really speaks into their language, into their own problems nowadays. But it's the only option they know. The conflicted relationship many young Italians have with the church creates something like an identity crisis in a culture that values belonging and connection. Yes, I would say that here in Italy, there is a combination of uh, the Western individualism that you find in other places, mixed with a sense of communal identity, a more collective uh, approach to life that gives a lot of emphasis on relationships, on being part of a group, being part of your family, staying loyal to your hometown and home region. And so um, our approach in, in, in presenting the gospel to people, it tries to offer a sense of belonging as much as believing. It's not only um, presenting a set of doctrines for people to believe in, but I feel it's here it's very important for them to see a community of people who believe. Uh, they see their relationships, how people relate to one another, how they love each other, how they deal with differences. And that makes a big part of, the, of the, um, filling out the picture for them to acquire a new sense of identity, which is Christian, but which is embodied in a community they get to be part of. So in terms of apologetics, Rene believes relationships are the best way to address concerns that the church is irrelevant or even immoral. When it comes to the ambivalence people feel towards religion here in Rome, I think a lot of it doesn't a lot of it doesn't happen in a spoken way, and more in an embodying a different way of being, a church which uh, functions in a different way, in which um, they see, for example, younger people attending it, and I remember a person saying, "Oh, church isn't just for." Um, old people and people down on their luck or who are poor or who are disabled. And uh, they see a group of people who looks, in a sense, normal, who has a, a different uh, liveliness to it, a different sense of love and uh, joy uh, in them. And a lot of it doesn't get really spoken, but then uh, you embody it. And then people start asking questions like, uh, why is that uh, this uh, thing that seems to happen in this way? And so um, they begin to ask questions. It's a, it's a beautiful thing because they're curious at the same time. They're puzzled. They don't have categories to do with what they're encountering, right? Um, at the same time, then it's, uh, they see the, the beauty of the church, people worshiping and people accepting them and loving them. And it's um, they almost go beyond the cognitive uh, process in terms of explaining things and giving categories to things. But they're trying to embody a worshiping community, a witnessing community for people. And they get to see that. And they, uh, often they get uh, captivated by that. To what degree do you see people kind of consciously recognizing the limitations of the frameworks that they have kind of inherited, either from a sort of nominal association with the church, kind of broader cultural expectations, or those secularizing kind of modern efforts to, to rebuild? What kinds of crises or conflicts do you see people reaching that might prompt them to look for a community like yours? Yes. Yes, I do see people uh, bumping into pressure points or, or conflicts or crises that open them to, uh, to the gospel. Uh, often it's, it's a love crisis. Uh, so uh, breakups, uh, the end of a marriage, the death of a spouse, or waiting for someone uh, who doesn't seem to be arriving, like a, a love interest. And, and often people uh, feel very lonely 
or they've been uh, through relationships which um, started well, but then ended in a toxic way. And they're wondering, uh, is it possible to build a healthy and lasting relationship? Then there are also emotional crises, uh, which are uh, hurts people's anxiety, how to forgive or if to forgive. Negative thinking, negative emotions have been very prevalent in the during the pandemic. A very pervasive sense of loneliness. People are very lonely today. They have the attachment of to the family here, but even so, they long to um, intimate relationships, a sense of belonging, almost to recover the belonging they felt as a, as children. Now, as adults, a pressure point for them is um, the increasing demands of success. Uh, the Western culture. Um, Put some people in terms of very increasingly unrealistic ambitions, like uh, make it and become successful and going viral and all those kind of things. It's very high expectations. And this generation feels that the possibilities are lower uh, compared to their parents uh, in, a, in a economic ways or um, the job market or uh, half of the Italians, uh, young Italians still live with their parents. So it's a lot of high expectations on them, but lower possibilities, lower resources. And I think a final pressure point is um, the internet, which promises connection, but actually creates alienation. And people are feeling increasingly um, cynic about on the online promise of connecting with uh, communities, with tribes, with people. And they're trying to find solutions to those questions. What ways have you found effective for helping those people then begin to see that the gospel might offer a solution to some of these crises or, or challenges they're facing? Um, here in Rome, we try to offer a number of things, a number of uh, possibilities or events where people might, might connect with a uh, church community some way. Some of them uh, present uh, the gospel in some way, some don't. Um, often they're very relational, like parties, like uh, doing a 1970s uh, party uh, where people just came and danced and had a good time. Culture events, like, uh, for example, dialogues, inviting someone from another uh, viewpoint. We've done debates with the Italian Union of Atheists, uh, with the largest Buddhist group in Italy. Uh, Rome has the largest mosque in Europe, so we did a debate with them about how religion can be a force for peace in the world. So it was very interesting. And then um, when you bring two perspectives coming together, it makes it very compelling to them, more than maybe a talk in which someone presents one point of view. But all of that tries to... Um, establish relationships in a sense of community and uh, belonging to a group. And what we try to do then to, is to canalize that into a, a pathway. What we do here in Rome is a secret groups, which is a series of evenings in which people come. We have pizza and we um, share our stories about our own lives and um, examine the stories of Jesus in the gospel, how people uh, Jesus um, met people or the stories that he shared, the parables. And often they get people talking and they love a sense of a, uh, a journey in a group together with people on the way who are seekers as well. And often they try to acquire uh, curiosity and interest in faith out of that. How do you understand the seam maybe between seeking and exploring and then being integrated into the broader community? I think that uh, here in Europe, people's paths towards faith often take longer. They have to uh, maybe overcome greater, um, greater doubts. They're less familiar. Uh, people's lives are complicated. That being said, in our case, the way we do seeker groups, we often try to be very clear and to invite people. And we often uh, we come to a point in which we meet them one-on-one -on -one for dinner, the, a person or a couple, and then we hear their story again, ask if they have questions, explain the gospel again. So it becomes a very clear um, 
point in which uh, someone decides to uh, embrace uh, the gospel and follow Jesus or not, in our case. Though there are some cases in which people like uh, maybe don't feel like doing that now, and they're part of a community, take longer, and some come to faith eventually, and some don't. We're obviously trying to move people into communion with Christ and communion with others in Christ. But I wonder where you, you know, kind of where you see participation along those various circles and kind of when does discipleship begin? When does the journey kind of start? Is there some point in that? Or is it all, is it all journey, all of it uh, kind of part of that movement toward Christ? To the extent that people attend social events, even hosted by the church or by people uh, from the church, when do they cross, cross the threshold and uh, join the community, join the church? I found that this boundary is often quite blurry for a few people in which they want to enjoy the community, but don't really want to um, believe or subscribe. We have, for example, people who come, uh, every, even if to church services and you see they don't like them, they don't like it, but they want to be around and they want to have friends, right? Uh, and we see that our approach is to let them let them be. Uh, invite them to try to take steps every now and then as they're ready, but then don't see too much of a problem if they're kind of around in a sense. How do you prepare or equip your congregants to do the work of, you know, connecting with their friends and neighbors and loved ones, coworkers, connecting them into these various points and pathways and being able to answer some of the questions that we're talking about? What we try to do, we try to um, encourage people to um, maintain a, um, a significant set of relationships, both acquaintances and uh, close relationships, in which they um, spend time in, in nurturing uh, those relationships, invite people for dinner, going out, trying to show love in a practical way, often in a costly way, uh, building trust. We also celebrate people who are doing that. I think it's often that that's the key. When we celebrate people who are um, making friendships or in inviting people in some way, or um, a friend who invited a friend uh, to come to church, often what we celebrate ends up happening. Uh, and then we also we celebrate baptisms here in our tradition. Uh, uh, we uh, baptize people as adults. And it's a very striking image for people in Rome to see an adult being baptized, not a baby. They only see babies. And we um, have people sharing their testimony and they're very eloquent and powerful in their stories, how they, um, their journey, how they uh, found Christ, what Christ means to them. And then we do it at a lake and see an adult being baptized. So these moments of celebrating the beginning of Christian life often sparks curiosity in people. And they say, oh, what's this? Um, what has this person uh, found? Maybe there's something for me here as well. What considerations do you make in your preaching or, or are there particular um strategies that you use in your preaching to try to connect with crises people are feeling that we talked about earlier, you know, the the sense of loneliness or um, disappointment in their career or other things. Uh, how do you use your preaching to kind of connect people to those broader cultural experiences and concerns? I think um, preaching is, is um, it can be very powerful when we try to identify with people even if you feel that you're going through very hard things, very strange things for us, to not talk to them as if uh, you are uh, going through that and that's that's bad, that that's um, there's a stigma around it, but try to really put ourselves in their shoes and saying, oh, maybe um, some of us here are dealing with anxiety or wondering, think about a, um, 
a friendship which didn't uh, which uh, uh, is integrated or a love relationship and really try to put themselves in their shoes and people feel like uh, uh, oh this person made the effort to feel what I'm feeling and there's no stigma even if there would be stigma in a in a church church setting in a sense so I think there's a very powerful and we, when we acknowledge the different states people are at and if people don't believe or if they have doubts or if they're not sure if they believe and we acknowledge that and it's no problem uh, people often feel included and they lean forward instead of uh, making taking a step back and not um, and feeling like, oh, I'm being here talked down to, I'm being judged. And uh, I think this is often a big part of it. Can you think of a, an example recent or, or otherwise from your church of someone who's kind of walked this journey from well outside the faith to just beginning to pay attention to Christianity, to the gospel, and then who kind of walked through this pathway we've been talking about to union with Christ. Can can you give us an example of something like that? Yes, I, I can share an example that happened in my own building and my own floor. It was uh, started with a, a girl from uh, Spain called Paula. Uh, she actually, uh, someone first witnessed to her in uh, when she lived in Spain, in Valencia, and uh, she was an atheist. At uh, university, people, uh, someone shared the gospel with her. And uh, she became a Christian. She moved to Rome as a fresh Christian, moved here and joined our church. She started working for the one of the UN's uh, organizations, the Food and Agriculture Organization here in Rome. Um, and she moved to the apartment just across mine in our building, where they lived uh, an Italian woman and a, um, a French woman. And then she uh, started sharing with them. And they were my neighbors. I used to greet them um, in the elevator, but didn't really take the conversation uh, very far. Uh, often just like, uh, how's it going? Good, have a good day. But then Paolo started witnessing to them uh, and they started coming to church, the three of them together. And then uh, as they came, they also uh, started attending the secret group we have in our own home. And uh, they uh, often came with uh, slippers uh, just across the hall. And we had uh, secret groups with them. And... Uh, Paula, and then Mireille, and then Roberta, the three of them uh, came to faith. It was a beautiful thing. One day I came off the elevator, and uh, there was worshiping music come from our church coming from their apartment. I said, uh, that's a beautiful picture. Like, uh, the fifth floor is covered, right, from our apartment and theirs. I, it's reached, and it was a, a beautiful uh, way of seeing how people, um, one came from an atheist background, uh, uh, Mireille was French, and had kind of a... Um, uh, melting pot of influence of yoga and then uh, maybe some esoteric things and then Roberta from a traditional Catholic family uh, but then the, the three of them came um, came to faith and uh, coming to church together uh, I think it was one picture of what happened here and would love to have happen all over Rome other buildings and all over the global cities of the world I asked Renee if he had stumbled into any particular surprises in ministry his answer summarized nicely an important theme of our conversation, the value of being seen and feeling a sense of belonging. One surprise we found, we discovered here in Rome, is that often unofficial ministry counts more than official ministry. That is, people want to be invited for dinner. Uh, they want to be ministered around the table. If you invite them for a Bible study group or for a church event, or something that has a, a little bit of sense of being official or uh, organized, uh, it doesn't count. 
It counts if it is perceived as spontaneous. Oh, you're taking an interest in me, inviting me for dinner. And then we talk pretty much about the same things. But uh, but did it feel like um, seeing, invited, appreciated, uh, not one in a, in a group of many, but seeing and, and appreciated for who they are and being invited as individuals? We noted in a previous episode that none of us lives in the West generically. We all live in a particular place, like Rome, where features of Western culture, such as individualism, are clearly at work, but are modulated into a different key by local histories and social realities. But we can get even more specific and local still. Even within one particular place, there live different peoples and populations. The parts of the dominant Western narratives that pinch and rip for majority culture people may sit differently with minority culture people. I spoke with Lisa Fields to understand better in what ways the cultural narratives of the West pinch and rip for people of African descent. Lisa is a sought-after apologist and the founder of the Jude 3 Project, an organization that equips church leaders and laypeople in apologetics. Our conversation had less to do with evangelizing secular people and more to do with addressing the concerns that drive young Christians away from the faith. This is a crucial ministry for churches as well, and one that lives along the seam of evangelism and discipleship. Lisa describes her work in this way. We try to equip uh, churches and lay people in apologetics. Um, We do that through a number of ways, uh, through podcasts, through conferences, through curriculum, online courses, and uh, many series we have on social media in our HBCU tour, Historically Black Colleges and University tour. So we're helping equip Christians to know what they believe and why in order to live it out and to be able to engage skeptics. Um, and so we think the church is our primary service because oftentimes when you're engaging skeptics, um, they'll be like, man, that's good. You know, we do forums on college campuses. Where can I go to church? And you want to point them to a church that's healthy enough to to be able to handle questions that are going to treat them with care that opens that are open to their questions. And not a lot of churches are ready for that. And so we have to help the church get ready um, for the skeptic. You um, are specifically targeting those cultural issues, current issues, and intellectual struggles that face Black Christians specifically. What kinds of different or additional questions do you find yourself addressing a lot? I think the most uh, pressing one that we address that stands out is, is Christianity a white man's religion? And that takes the form of a number of different Black religions or Black cults, uh, depending on how you would describe it, like Nation of Islam, Hebrew Israelism, uh, Black Hebrew Israelites, Cometicism, uh, Moors, um, all of these different kinds of groups. At the core, they're all saying Christianity is a white man's religion. Now, whether you go into Hebrew Israelism, where I, I think of it as more of a, a Jewish segment, um, or Nation of Islam, which is a more uh, segment of Islam, um, you're going to, at the core, what they're saying is the same that Christianity is a white man's religion and they need to find a faith that validates their identity. And so that's one of the most pressing things that, that we deal with. I want to stay there for just a second um, because you've 
used a word that I think is really important to the big project that we're doing here when it comes to having a missionary engagement with Western culture. And one of the things that we talk about a lot being a challenge is the way people form and think about identities in modern culture. So I'm curious how, like how the appeal of something like Nation of Islam in identity formation for someone who's questioning Christianity, how, how do those things relate to each other? Identity was the first thing that the enemy used to lead people in deception uh, in the garden. Um, he said, you could be like, uh, you could be as God. And uh, he was playing on who they saw themselves as, their identity. In the same way, he's this, uh, he doesn't have new tricks. He just recycles the old ones. And <laughs> people are really, because their identity hasn't been affirmed uh, because of the history of um, black people, uh, particularly in a, in the U.S., where we were known as three fifths of, of a person, and constantly our identity were we were less than. You know, there were different creation narratives even given to us. Um, when slave owners would give us give slaves the Bible, they would tell them that they weren't a part of the creation narrative. That they had a second account of creation. So historically our identity in America hasn't been affirmed. And so when you, and, and a part of that, um, that uh, way in which people didn't affirm our humanity, they used the Bible to do it. And so they were using pieces of the Bible, not the whole Bible. And to, to pick and choose things that would, that, like the curse of Ham or things like that. And so, because of that, people look for a faith that's going to affirm them, that's going to say that they are human, to give them identity. And um, if if people don't treat you like you're human, you you don't want their faith. So geographically, Black Americans are part of the West, but their their relationship and experience within the Western story is unique. So I'm curious how you would describe the relationship between people of African descent in the U.S. or abroad to the sort of bigger story of the Western world? Yeah, um, I think it's a very complicated relationship. Um, one, because we were uh, kidnapped and brought over here as slaves um, against, our, against our will. And so that creates, obviously, conflict between this dominant West culture and it creates conflict between how we view the faith of those who have the dominant culture. Part of the way we think about the missionary encounter with the West is addressing some of these cultural narratives that modern secular culture has been trying to shape us to conform to. We've become pretty familiar, I think, with the narratives that relate to kind of majority Western culture. Are there particular narratives among Black Americans, for example, that create different apologetic questions or evangelistic obstacles? You know, I had a, a student at a HP, historical Black college and university come to me and wanted to know, like, did God even care about injustice? Because of the ways he's seen forgiveness preached. And he thought the concept of forgiveness, the way he had heard it, would be a way in which people can kind of scapegoat 
justice. So he he was really struggling with the, the faith because of that. Like, should I trust a God who doesn't care about injustice? He just wants me to forgive those who do wrong. And it's like, that's a part of the apologetic we have to wrestle with. God does care about injustice so much so that he sent his son to die. Um, but that, that isn't, that doesn't negate the fact that we are to fight for justice on earth. You know, the, you can't read the old Testament without stumbling upon passage upon passage about how God cares about those who have been treated unjustly. Proverbs is full of, um, proverbs that tell about God's heart for those who have been treated unjustly. And so I think it is a poor reading sometimes in the West to glaze over how God feels about injustice. And so one that's one of the another major apologetic question that is pressing in the African American community. And there are young people going leaving the church and going to different groups um, that I feel are very problematic because they don't hear the church addressing these things. Are you seeing that exodus from historically black churches, from predominantly white churches, or both? Or what? What's the situation that you're witnessing in that in that sense? Yes, everywhere. There's definitely people across the spectrum, um, young people leaving churches. It may come as a surprise to hear that there are young black Christians leaving historically black churches because they're not addressing these issues when I might have assumed that black churches have been addressing these issues for a while. So can you maybe give me some context on that? Why are millennial and Gen Z Christians not hearing what they need to hear in the churches that they're growing up in? Yeah. So many of these groups have, they've been around like Hebrew Israelism has been around for, for years. It's picked up momentum because of social media, comedic science, uh, African spirituality. It's picked up momentum because of social media. And so it's moving and evolving at such a rapid pace because of technology that many historic black churches haven't got caught up to speed on the questions that young people are really even asking. And that's why us equipping the church is so important we want to help them stop the bleeding but many of them don't even know have any context for the question because they're like i could tell you about you know pictures of white jesus and stuff broader but when you go deep into the weeds of these doctrinal things that these other groups are talking about they're just like not aware of it one of the things i find really interesting about the appeal of those movements is that they are trying to root contemporary black identity in something ancient, something historic, and even geographically trying to help a population who has lost connection with their place of origin. Is, is there a way to leverage that impulse of trying to be rooted in something in the evangelistic work, apologetic work that you're doing? Yeah. Um, it's funny because I think, as you were saying, a lot of Americans majority culture are so like tethered to American identity that they don't care about necessarily whether they're Scottish or what whatever part of Europe um, because they've been so tethered to American identity 
Um, but for them, the American identity is an, it's a quote unquote success story for majority culture. Um, but for many African-Americans, it hasn't been that same success story. And because it seems like a place where for many majority culture thrives and minority culture doesn't thrive. Many African-Americans want to tether themselves to our identity where there's, there's power, prominence, prosperity, all the things that the quote unquote American dream promises for the majority culture. Many minorities are seeking that something to connect themselves to for their culture. Even now, Ancestry.com and all these things are, are big things. So anybody could trace their history um, for the most part or their family tree, but it's not so simple for African-Americans. I think understanding that helps give a little bit of empathy to those who are reaching to know, hey, people want to to connect. And I mean, biblically, you see that your genealogy is so important, you know, Many books of the Bible start with genealogies or have long genealogies because ancestry and history mattered. And if if it was so significant for it to be documented um, in the scripture, how much more does the human heart want to be connected or know their history? So one of the initiatives that I find really interesting that Jude 3 Project does is the HBCU tour evangelicals often think of universities as the places that people go to lose their faith. And so I think it's really great that you're targeting that, that context with these apologetic conversations. So can you tell us, kind of paint a picture for us of what those, what that tour looks like and what you're trying to accomplish in the HBCU tours? Yeah, so our HBCU tour is a, uh, and for those who don't know, it's historically black colleges and universities. Um, we seek to answer the question, is Christian and white man's religion? We kept hearing from black students, hey, I have friends walking away because of this. Can y'all help? So it was like the majority culture at HBCU is African-American students. So we're definitely going to meet our target there. And we just have forums, and our forums are very interactive. They include media, uh, discussion, Q&A. Um, and so we start 20 minutes with a session called Talk Back. We give stu 10 students two minutes apiece, um, the opportunity to come to the mics in the, in the audience to tell us what they've heard about Christianity being a white man's religion. And once you get one student, everybody wants to cut, come up, but you have to cut it off at 10. And then we uh, play viral videos that kind of uh, hold up this narrative that Christianity white man religion when we played the first one is from a guy named brother polite who says Christianity has always been forced on Africans and then we have a church history professor named Vince Bantu and he does 20 minutes of the history of Christianity in Africa um starting from first the first century up to I think fifth century and then we um then we go to slavery in America so we play a clip from Nat Turner which he talks about um, uh, slaves, slave masters using scripture, um, using black preachers to preach scripture about slaves submit to your to your masters. And we talk about how slavery has been um, the Bible was misused in slavery. Uh, we have usually a pastor or influencer come do that. 
and then we and then the third we have a, a, a clip of a gentleman who says that the black church only takes from the community they don't give to the community I talked to, about the impact of the black church and then after that they they students love it because we're not just lecturing at them we're playing videos that they've seen on YouTube that have been viral they're responding to them and not taking responding long 15 20 minutes and then Q&A can last an hour or two depending on how many questions and they always have a lot of questions <laughs> um and so that's that's and we go around to different HBCUs to do that are there questions that come up kind of frequently asked questions in those Q&A sessions that you hear a lot yeah um things about you know p images of white Jesus images of Bible characters that are white. Um, why should we trust this? How can we trust this history? You know, things like that. Um, but I'm I'm very encouraged about the comments. Like, this is the first time I've heard this. I finally see myself in this faith. I was about to walk away, but this is helping me stay. Like, that really encourages me. Um, it gives me this image of, you know, in Jew, it says pulling some from the fire, that we get a chance to, to pull these many of these young people back as they're on their way out, we get a chance to, to help them um, see history as it is. When I think of the questions that you just mentioned about images of white Jesus and white characters in the Bible and the sort of hidden history of Christian history in Africa and those kinds of things, it occurs to me that it's probably not the broader culture that are giving people the wrong idea about white Jesus and the history of Christianity in Africa and those things, it's churches that have given people the wrong idea. It sounds like for the work that you're doing, the church is one of those apologetic issues. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Yes. Do you feel that the broader kind of cultural conversations about secularism and those things are are they in the front or are they in the back in the conversations that you're having? Like our secular narratives about what it means to be a person, are they driving the conversation or are they in the background? They're in the background. Um, it's funny because I, we just did a mini series called From People to Person. And I, I flew in a girl who's in comedic science, African spirituality, walked away from the church and a guy who identifies as Hebrew. And we sat down for conversation and it wasn't a debate. I didn't want to, I didn't challenge them on any of their beliefs. I just wanted to hear how they got there. And it was funny because as I listened to the girl specifically, her main issue was the church. The reason she got to African spirituality was the the church. And as we talked over dinner, because, you know, we went to dinner, car ride, all of that after we did the on-camera stuff. And it was just interesting to hear. I said, have you ever seen a Christian practice what they preach? And she said, no. And she said, one of the reasons I went to the African Spirituality Committee, because I finally saw people who at least lived what they preached. And that was the most appealing. So I was like, so it's not knowledge that's the most pressing thing for you. Is it? It's experience. And she said, yeah. And I think that's what people miss. Sometimes apologists miss that sometimes you could go back and forth arguing with people wrestle them down about an idea and say you won you beat their point but if their if their problem with Christianity is how Christians treat them and their experience with Christians and what they've seen Christians do in the name of God 
there's no argument that you can make to convert them outside of how you treat them, how you live before them, and how you love them. And um, I think that's just something we have to wrestle with, that it's not just about information, it's about application. What advice would you give to pastors listening to this conversation about creating space for listening to people who have had these kinds of experiences? Yeah, I think it's simple. Uh, the answer's in the question. Just create space and listen. Um, just invite people that have left the church, invite people who've left the faith to come into your space and say, hey, share your story with me. How did you get here? What led you to this down this path? And just be quiet and look them in their eye as they're talking and listen. And that's so difficult for Christians because as soon as they hear a point that's doctrinally off or as soon as they hear something heretical or as soon as they hear something that they disagree with, they feel like they have to correct them at that moment. And I just, I tell people to think about it. Like God is amazing to me. One of the most amazing things to me about God, especially in prayer, he lets us question his character he lets us say all kinds of frustrating things about who he is when he's demonstrated over and over again that he's exactly who he said he was within scripture. But he comes and lets us bring all of that to him, all our frustrations, all the fact that we don't think that he cares about us, all of that in prayer. And he's just there and he doesn't say anything until he he feels like he needs to say something that's so comforting that we have someone that will let us cast our cares, our frustrations on him. And that is so comforting. And I think that if that's comforting to us, why can't we give that gift to others? Uh, we want to be prepared to give an answer. We want to have an answer, but every moment is not the right moment to deliver an answer. Yeah. And first Peter three fifteen says, give an answer to anyone that acts. When you're listening, people are just venting. They're not asking questions. So they're not they're not asking you to make an objection while they're venting. When if they ask you a question about the sovereignty of God or authority of scripture, yes, be prepared to answer that. But when they're venting about their frustration with the church or what they've seen or why they went to another faith, they're not asking a question. And I always tell people, when you listen to people and you hear them, they will listen and hear you because they feel respected and they feel honored. And so when it's your turn to talk, when they invite you into the conversation, they're gonna be more prone because you listen to them. We did a, a round table discussion with four young adults who left the church called Why Don't Go. They told me this was the first time somebody listened to them from the church. And I'm like, this shouldn't be the first time that somebody listened to you voice these complaints. And so I think we just have to do better about being able to just say, you know what, I'm gonna listen to you. And it may offend me, but I'm just gonna, I'm willing to be offended because God is not offended in prayer when I bring things to him. What advice would you give pastors, church leaders who are trying to be more sensitive to the sort of particular questions people are asking where they are um, and create space for good dialogue? I think one of the most helpful things and underutilized things that churches do is anonymous surveys. 
um, when we did an apologetics class in my dad's church, my dad told me he wanted me to teach one. And I said, I want to do a survey first. I want to do an anonymous survey to see where people at, to see what our doctrinal beliefs are versus what people actually believe. Because people, one of the things pastors don't realize is that usually people don't come to church for preaching. They come for worship. They come for children's ministry, community. If that's the last thing, it may be some disconnect between what's being communicated from the pulpit and what the people actually believe. And oftentimes they're not going to tell the pastor directly what they believe. So you have to create a space where they feel safe enough so you could gauge where they are. Because many there's a, a tremendous gap oftentimes between the pew and the pulpit. And so I think an anonymous survey will help you gauge where people are, give them the openness to leave their questions or, you know, send their questions somewhere on a, on a Google form that you it's not connect to an email that they could submit questions and then go through it with your leadership team to see a systematized way where you could start answering some of these questions and start seeing the needs or where people are. They may not, they may have been in church all their life and don't know how to study the Bible. Um, or they may be really struggling with justice, but they're not going to necessarily feel comfortable to tell you that directly. So you create avenues where they could say it anonymously until they build up the courage to come directly to you. So I think those are some helpful next steps. We've been toggling in this series between the universal and the particular, from meta-level cultural trends and transitions to specific cultural contexts. Our focus this week has been even more granular. Renee and Lisa have encouraged us to think at the level of individuals, individuals who are part of communities and histories and changing contexts, to be sure, but individuals, too, with personal hopes and hurts. If you're listening to this on a walk or during a commute, I hope you'll take a few moments of silence to think about people near you who are hungry for informal ministry around the dinner table, where they can tell their stories to someone who's eager to listen. And come back next week. We have Sam Alberry and Ephraim Smith unpacking what it looks like for Christians to be committed to a category-defying social vision, especially as that pertains to our sexual ethics and our commitment to racial reconciliation and multi-ethnic ministry. How to Reach the West Again is a production of Redeemer City to City. It is written and hosted by Brandon O'Brien. Just about everything else is done by Braden Gregg. Special thanks to Roosevelt Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona for their generous use of studio space. And to learn more about Redeemer City to City, visit us at RedeemerCityToCity.com.